All right, well, as the children prepare to leave to go to the Bible study time, we can stay in here, and we're going to turn again to the Gospel of John. Today, we uncover the sixth I am statement made by Jesus that's exclusively written in the Gospel of John. And today's I am statement is one that you're probably familiar with. You probably have heard it countless times, maybe even memorized it when you were younger and still know it today, and maybe even expressed it verbally to others you know and love. But maybe then, as you said this particular I am statement, maybe you've never reflected or just thought about the fact that it was one of those seven, one of the seven of the powerful I am statements. So what is this sixth I am that we uncover today? It is none other than John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. Now, while you probably are familiar with that particular verse in chapter 14 and verse 6 of John's Gospel, you may not be completely familiar with the context in which Jesus speaks that particular sixth I am of the seven. So let's do a bit of a review. Remember, we had said, first of all, back many weeks ago, that the first I am statement made in John chapter 6, verse 35, was when Jesus said it just after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. He proclaimed that I am the bread of life. He capitalized upon the fact that he had just fed the 5,000. He used the bread as an analogy to express then that he is the bread of life. It was much like we had seen in John chapter 4 when Jesus used the analogy of the water to express to the woman at the well that he is the living water. So we found then upon a couple of occasions he is using an analogy or something of sorts to be able to express a certain truth and I am. But while a metaphor or an analogy was used upon a couple of occasions, recall in a few other instances, he utilized a festival or a particular uh, gathering and people make an I am statement. We have seen that was certainly the case for the second and the third and the fourth I am statements. Remember in John chapter 8, he was at the Feast of Tabernacles. The occasion was about to be the lighting of the temple, and he proclaimed to everyone in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Similarly, a few months later, we found that he was again within the temple. It was a different dedication, a different particular festival. It was a Hanukkah, and they were about to uh, express those things pertaining to Hanukkah, and he said to them, I am the gate, I am the door, in John chapter 10. So he has used parables, he has used analogies, he's used metaphors, he's used particular occasions or festivals to make an I am statement. And then last week, you may remember in John chapter 11, he informed a grieved crowd gathered in Bethany, I am the resurrection and the life. That announcement was soon after his friend Lazarus had died and just before he raised Lazarus from the dead. So we look upon that and see, okay, Jesus has used various key moments to make extremely powerful I am statements. And in today's text, we find yet another momentous occasion. So then we ask, what is the setting in which he announces then, I am the way, the truth, and the life? And we answer, it is upon him sharing with his disciples of his soon departure from the world. We'll find, as we go into the text and explain it in just a moment, that the disciples, when hearing this news, 
are troubled and greatly perplexed. And Jesus shares with them words to comfort them, and simultaneously expressing then the sixth I am. To stand this morning as we do to simply honor the reading of the word, we're going to land ourselves in John chapter 14. We're going to read the first 14 verses of the chapter, and then we'll begin to explain and apply what the verses are we're reading today as John writes the words of our Lord, maybe written in red in your Bible, but here's what it talks about in John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus speaking, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Well, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Well, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. O Father, we do come to you at this particular moment, Lord, on this occasion, this day, this hour, this minute. And we pray, Lord, that you would allow us then to be able to understand the text where the sixth great I am, the powerful truth, is spoken. And to see not only the context and understand it, but to see how it applies to us in the world and the day that we're living in. So, Lord, then with that, we invite the Spirit to lead and to guide. I pray, Lord, as I do always, that these words that would be expressed today would not be words that I want to say, but words that you want us to hear that will penetrate our soul, our heart. Lord, let us receive this text, this message today in its entirety to understand how you speak to us and how you truly are the way, the only way for us to see the Father. So Lord, we thank you again for what shall happen here now today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as I somewhat alluded to during the introduction, as the reader then just leaps into the Gospel of John and just opens the Bible and then lands in chapter 14, they must understand, although they may not have some clarity with it, that a lot has happened to get to this particular point where he makes this next I am statement. But to disciples, we also gather pretty quickly as we read through the text, as I mentioned earlier, that they're a little bit confused concerned, and maybe even perplexed about what Jesus is saying to them. 
So then offer me then, uh, allow me then to offer a bit of the synopsis about what has happened from the last time we were in John, we were in chapter 11, and through up to today where we see why then the disciples are a little perplexed and confused about what Jesus is telling them. Because we see a little bit of the bewilderment, if you will, of the disciples upon the words that Jesus is telling them. So to notice in the disciples' perplexity started with Jesus telling them essentially that he was going away. Now to show you then, building up to the chapter 14, the, the bewilderment of the disciples, that this is not the first time Jesus has hinted at the fact that he might be going away. The most recent, in fact, is in John chapter 13, verse 33, where he says to them, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now with that, I should also add that this is, again, not the first time he has told him he's going away. No. He has previously hinted at his going away on four other occasions. He has mentioned in chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, in chapter 8, and twice in chapter 12, besides what we just read in chapter 13. And not only then has he shared with his disciples of his going away, he also has given them some sort of hint or indication of his soon death. Look with me at John chapter 12 and verse 23 and 24, where he says to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, whether they understood that or not is a bitter discussion, but it indicates to all who understand it of his forthcoming death. So then picture, if you will, the disciples of all this building in their lives, of the now hearing the news again of his departure, that they are grieved, bewildered, and maybe even confused. And just so we know, as if that's not enough to add to their perplexity and to their, their confusion and their being concerned, we should also interject some other things that happened that he's talked about that took, took place before his death. Like, he has now taken opportunity in John chapter 13 to dine with his disciples. He has had the ceremonial washing of their feet. He's breaking bread with them, which will be the last supper, the last meal they'll have together. And he's even informed them at that particular occasion that he is betrayed by Judas. And to cap it all off, at the end of chapter 13, he actually shared with them, particularly Peter, that Peter would disown them, disown him three times. So a lot has happened, and the wonder then, the disciples come to him here in chapter 14, which is a load of questions. I mean, they're concerned. One commentary I was reading last week said, the cumulative weight of these revelations they have received must have been greatly depressing to them, and certainly left them bewildered. And so according to the text, as it was then for the disciples, sensing their bewilderment, their confusion, their perplexity, Jesus begins to express some words meant to comfort them. And we see that written and expressed in John chapter 14. Now notice then as we return to the text that Jesus' comfort is really in the form of exhortations and promises. 
So let us take in a couple of minutes here to review the exhortations and the promises that he expresses, particularly from the first six or seven verses, that is meant to provide comfort to his disciples. And the first he tells them then in verse 4 and very immediately is, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Now in the text, as we find the word troubled, in the Greek is actually terrestrial, which means agitated. Or stirred. So he's saying, do not let your hearts be agitated, stirred, or troubled up. Now notice he just don't say that. He also adds an imperative in the very end of verse 1. He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. So he tells them then, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be agitated. Upon hearing the news, don't let it be troubling to you. He also tells them, believe in God. Believe also in me. So we stop there for a minute and take a little time out. Because he asked the question now, what does it mean to believe? That's what he just told them in the paradise. Believe in God, believe also in me. So we ask the question, what does it mean to believe? We are believers, right? So as we contemplate the question, we must think about what does it really mean to believe? And the answer to really believe, to what it means to really believe is trust. To believe is to trust Jesus. And not a shallow trust. I mean completely, totally trusting Jesus in every aspect of life. Every aspect of life. That's what it is to believe. But the question then as a follow-up is, do we do that? Do we truly trust Jesus in every aspect of life? Do we really believe that in the crisis that we're having, we can trust him that it will turn out for our good? And even then for our spiritual growth? Do we believe? Do we trust? Now last week, if you were here, you may recall that during the discussion and in reading the fifth I am, which was I am the resurrection and the life, we applied that with a subpoint that told us that Jesus is always with us. Even in the midst of a crisis we're having in our life, even when we begin to doubt and ask Jesus, where are you? He is still there. He is still with us. During our welcome time, you know, each week we take a moment to discuss our prayer list. It is extensive. It is long. It covers the front and the back of a page. And no, we don't update each and every person each week because we don't have the time to be able to do that. But we look at the prayer list, we have it in a bulletin because many people, it reveals that many people that we know and love, the church family and outside of our church family, is in the midst of a crisis, some difficulty, something that's happened in their life that has placed them on that prayer list. And in every particular crisis, every particular request, they must know, we must believe that God is with them. Now, with that, we don't know the outcome of every particular person's need and what may ultimately happen. We're not privy to that. But that's when we must simply believe and trust Him. That's what it means to believe. Simply trust that He is with you through any particular crisis in life. In fact, when it comes to having a crisis in life, there's an old saying that is actually positively true. It has been rightfully said that everyone 
everyone is either in a crisis, coming out of a crisis, or going into a crisis. You're either in a crisis at the moment, or you're coming out of a crisis, or you're going into a crisis. I mean, that's just the way life is. It may be unfair, it may be unfortunate, but no matter who you are, or how old you are, or where you live, or what race or gender you may be, it doesn't even matter how much money you have. Each of us have a crisis that we'll have in life. No one is exempt from having a crisis. And for that matter, once you become a Christian, you're still not exempt from having a crisis. But what it does mean when you're a believer and you're a Christian is that when you are in a crisis, you can fully count on God. You can fully count on Jesus. You can believe it. He is there. He is with you. In fact, a lot of times, recognize how Jesus will bring you through the crisis. When we are at our very weakest moment, he is at his strongest. And he is there to help us through it all. In any crisis we have in life. Now, many of us are thinking about that right now. And many of us recognize how we either are in a crisis, coming out, or going in. But I recognize, looking around the room, that we've all had a crisis. I can think of the accident that Levi had many years ago. What a crisis that was for him and for the family, for Chris and Katina and the family. We had Tom, who's not here this morning, who was in Florida and had a crisis in which they never thought he'd make it back out of Florida, alive to back to Indiana. I mean, what a crisis it was for Tom and Penny and the children. It's been a while since Kimberly's been here, but you heard a testimony, if you were here one particular Sunday morning, of the crisis she had during the pregnancy she had with Daniel. She didn't know if Daniel would ever be born. What a crisis that was for Tyler and Kimberly. We talked about Justin, who most recently we've learned has been in the accident that electrically shock that he received from being trimming some trees. Jeremy was still talking about it Wednesday night. I mean, what a crisis it is for his family. Throughout Bill's hospitalization that carried on for almost a year, through Nor's cancer. I mean, there's all kinds. We can look around the room and look at each other and say, yes, our church family has been in crisis after crisis after crisis. That's just how it is in life. Yes, we're there for each other. But we can see now, then, as we look upon the crisis that we've actually had, and now think back about the text and disciples, well, yeah, they're in their own Mr. Crisis now. I mean, they're looking upon their leader, their master, the one they've been following for years, and he's telling about his departure and about his impending death, and that puts them in a crisis. And so Jesus, then sensing this, he comes alone to try to comfort them. He's telling his disciples to hold fast especially in the light of his upcoming death. He's telling them of his departure, his death, but he's telling them you need to hold fast. Hold fast in the midst of any crisis. And that same truth applies to any of us and to all of us. That when we're in a crisis, what we must do is hold fast to Jesus to help us through the crisis. Because he is the only one who can truly comfort you. We've always had family and friends around us 
that will help us also through the crisis. But yet, have you ever noticed how in a real moment of hardship, how somehow because they're human, they'll have a time when they'll fail? And it may or may not be there. I mean, it's just our human nature. I mean, they, they really have the best intentions to want to help, but they're, they're still human. And they're still, so at, at times, your family and friends just may not actually have the words to help. Or the time to be there. But when you recognize who you can lean on and recognize Jesus is the one to lean upon to help you through the crisis, he will literally pull you through it, pick you up, and bring you through it. And in verse 1, as he's telling them about his departure, he reveals that they and we must trust him. He tells them the imperative, believe in God, believe also in me. And it's the only way, the only true way that can help a troubled, agitated heart is to simply trust and believe in Jesus. That's how he initially begins to comfort them. Believe in God, believe also in me. Do not let your heart be troubled. But he didn't just share that truth with them. He tells them more. And going back to the text, he gets more specific, if you will, in verses 2 through 4 about what can comfort the disciples. I mean, nothing takes Jesus by surprise, of course. He senses and knows their heart is troubled about impending death. So he tells them in verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you there to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And he says, you know the way where I'm going. Now you can take verses 2 through 4 and summarize them all, place them together, and give a wonderful promise and truth this. That heaven is a real place. Heaven is a real place. That's a way to summarize what's being mentioned in verses 2 through 4. That heaven is a real place. I mentioned earlier in the introduction that we are in our midst of having the end of Revelation. And in our Wednesday evening study of Revelation, we most recently discussed then, as we get towards the end of the book of Revelation, the new heaven and the new earth. And we review the scriptures that uh, tell us about the beauty of the new heaven and the new earth. And we even consider scholarly comments that tell us about this wonderful home that is awaiting us and being prepared for us. It's the eternal home that awaits each and every believer. But here in chapter 14, Jesus actually offers a little bit more insight to this wonderful, magnificent, heavenly home. And he tells them, he tells the disciples that repeat it, that there's a room, a, a place. Some translations even worded as a mansion is being prepared for them as well as for us. Because it's not just true for the disciples, it's also true for us, as we also are disciples, followers of Christ. It's a very special place, a real place, not fiction, not make-believe, is being prepared for you and for me. But to notice as that is meant to comfort them, that this real place is being prepared for them, notice also what he tells them in verse 3. Who will come for them? Who will come? It is Jesus in verse 3. I mean, how awesome is that? I mean, the special place is being prepared, and 
it's comforting for us to know the special place is being prepared for us, but it's also even more comforting, in fact, to know that he will come back for us. And not only is that comforting to the disciples, it should be comforting to you and to me. It should be very comforting to know a special place is being prepared for you and that Jesus himself will come for you. Again, the second point we're seeing here is that heaven is a real place. A real place. Which means then it's not a product of religious imagination or a result of some psyched up mentality looking for some pie in the sky by and by. We're not, it's not that. I mean, heaven is the place where God dwells and where Jesus sits today at the right hand of the Father. I mean, Scripture reveals this truth that heaven is a real place. It's described as a kingdom in 2 Peter, an inheritance in 1 Peter, as a country and city in Hebrews chapter 11, and a home in John chapter 14, as we just read. And the text reveals that Jesus Christ is now preparing places for all true believers. And each place will be absolutely, positively the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. But even further, recognize how heaven is a place of love and joy. When the Apostle John was stranded, placed on the island of Patmos, writing the book of Revelation, he began to describe heaven. And he ran out of all the symbols he could possibly imagine or use for the comparison. I mean, he, he finally, in, in Revelation 21 and 22, used all the words he could express of beauty and all the precious stones to describe heaven. He finally just started writing about the things that's not in him, like no death or sorrow or crying or pain. He talked about all these things. I mean, what a wonderful home it will be. And we will get to enjoy it forever. That should be comforting to everyone. I really like the words of Warren Worsby. He said, when he, Jesus, was here on earth, Jesus was a carpenter. He said, now that he has returned to glory, he is building the church on earth and a home for that church in heaven awaiting you. Heaven is indeed a real place, a special place in which we shall be together and a special home be prepared for you. And not only is heaven a real place that awaits every believer, notice again verse 14, I mean chapter 14, verse 3, is the clear promise that our Lord's return for his people. We should remember that Jesus never leaves us or forsakes us, as mentioned in Hebrews 13, 5. He is not leaving his disciples necessarily, but rather departing, in which ultimately ushers in the Holy Spirit. But we should make no mistake. He is coming again. Jesus will return. The scripture tells us so. It even tells us here he will come back for us and take us with him. How wonderful that is to also know as we're in the middle of a crisis that we have a beautiful place to prepare for us. And as the time draws near, he will come back and take us with him. But as we once again return to the passages here in John 14, we must see then that the disciples, as he's expressing the truth to them, providing a comfort for their bewilderment, 
I just don't know truly if they're getting it, if they understand. I mean, even the casual reading, if you will, of John chapter 14 allows you quickly to discern that they're a little confused. I mean, go back to the text and particularly look at what Thomas expresses in verse 5. I mean, Jesus said to all this to comfort them, and then Thomas said to him in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now notice that Thomas is the voice recorded in chapter 14, verse 5. But we can assume then that all the men gathered together, not just Thomas, is a little perplexed. And that's not speculative or suggestive to even say that. Because notice that he doesn't say, I am not understanding where you're going. He, he says the word we. We do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? I mean, he's kind of speaking for the group. Normally, it's Peter. It's how about to be Thomas. He's kind of speaking for all the men. Lord, we do not know the way. We do not where you're going. So then Jesus hears this. Of course, he responds then in the sixth I am, the most powerful truth, yet controversial truth in the world today, where he says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Which then leads us to our final point for this morning of application. That Jesus is the way. We could say the only way for everyone. He is the only way for everyone to see the Father. Now, in a way, if you will, that reminds us or echoes the truth of the third I am. You may remember in John chapter 10, Jesus stated, I am the door, I am the gate. So here we see expressed in different words the same truth. Where he says, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No man, no woman, no child, or anyone for that matter, can come to the Father except by or through me. Which is translated then as, Jesus is the way for every person, for everyone. He is the gatekeeper to heaven. No one gets there to heaven. To see the Father without coming through Jesus. It is the only way. As a very intentional truth and promise stated by our Lord this particular moment. Now note, if you will, that Jesus doesn't simply teach that he is the way. I mean, he isn't just pointing the way. I mean, he doesn't just say, he's just not pointing the way to get there. He's actually saying, this is the only way you will get there. Notice it's a simple truth that people must understand. He's not simply pointing the way. He's saying this is the way. In Dr. Jefferson's book called Not All Roads, All Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, he illustrates this truth that Jesus is the only way as he borrows the words of William Busey. Busey is writing about a group of men who decided to go on a backcountry wilderness exploration trip in Canada. As they're going to Canada then to make all the arrangements to go into the mountains, they arrive at the outfitter's camp on the edge of the woods and spend the entire morning preparing packs and supplies for their long journey. But a member of the group, one of the men noticed that the guy that's going to lead them doesn't have any maps for the wilderness region that they'll be going and exploring. And even worse, they look further and he not only has no maps, he has no compass. So the men approach him then about their concerns, 
And they ask him, how can we know the way with no map and no compass? And he smiled and said to them, maps and compasses are not the way through these mountains. I am the way through the mountains. Very similarly here, Jesus tells the disciples in all the world that he and he alone can lead us safely through the wilderness of this world and the journey we're living into the presence of God. He's saying, I am the way, and I am the only way. No maps, no compass will help you find your way. The only way is Jesus. As a side note, it's rather interesting as Jesus now expresses the truth that he is the way. If you read the book of Acts, you're going to recognize that the early church described themselves or talked about themselves as the way. It's kind of interesting to kind of put that together. And now we see here that Jesus truly is the way. And we should make no mistake about it. I mean, a certain truth is being made here, a particular moment that you've heard, that you've memorized, that you've expressed to others. Now, it's not popular today. As you go let later and tell anyone, and maybe you already have in life, that Jesus is the only way, it's not popular to go and tell people that Jesus is the only way to see the Father, to make the heaven. But being unpopular does not diminish its truthfulness. Jesus is the way, the only way. Now, as he makes that statement, in the sixth verse of this chapter. Notice he adds just a little something to it. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But notice, if you will, he adds this. No one comes to the Father except for me. And I bring that back to full circle so you see that again because it wipes away, think about it, it wipes away every other proposal you may possibly hear to get to heaven. Oprah is wrong, okay? Other people are wrong if they tell you any other way to get to heaven. I mean, when he says no one, that means no one, but no one will come to the Father except through him. It wipes away every other thing you may hear. So it tells us expressively that Jesus is the only way, and the only way is through Jesus Christ. That's what he's sharing with his disciples. Now, as we think about that, we've got to pause and think for a moment. Because not only is now he, I mean, they're, they're, they're perplexed, they're confused, they're bewildered. He just shared with them that he's going away. And he's saying these words to try to comfort them. So as we think about all that, here's what we have to process now in our minds. I mean, as he's sharing this truth, I mean, in, in, in the state that they are, being bewildered, stressed, grieved, maybe even crisis-stricken, the thought he's going away, the question here to be able to contemplate for you at the moment is how would this assurance of going to heaven as Jesus is the only way, how would that help to calm them and their troubled hearts? Or maybe even making it more personal, how would this, when you're in a crisis, when you're in a crunch and you're troubled, how does this help, this truth, how does this help your troubled, agitated heart? Dr. James Gray kind of put it beautifully in a song he wrote many years ago. He said, who could bind the journey when the road leads home? And, and I say that because the point is this. We are in a journey called life. 
And we're certainly then going to have, if you've not already, and you will again, have a troubled heart. And the comfort for a troubled heart, for whatever reason that may occur, can be the promise, the truth, and the absolute assurance. It's the assurance of a heavenly home that awaits you because simply of your faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, you know that you know that you know. There's no other way. And you know because I believe and I have faith in Jesus, he's preparing that place for me and that can give me all the comfort I need. And yes, he's going to come back and receive me. I mean, it's your faith in knowing that Jesus is the only way that enables you to joyfully bear any obstacle, any hardship in life, any battle you may face in the journey because you know that your home is awaiting you. You may have been told before, as you become a follower of Christ, that your troubles may stop. That is an absolute false truth. It's a lie. Just because you're a Christian does not mean you're going to be exempt from having a crisis. Crisis in life still come. But through Jesus Christ, there's no doubt that you are better prepared to face any crisis you'll have in life. And in knowing that the road and journey of a troubled life leads to a heavenly home full of joy and happiness is your reward for enduring whatever trial you may be in the midst of or coming out of or going into. The question really is, do you have that reward waiting? And the only way you have that reward waiting on you is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. He's telling us here an absolute positively true. You must place your faith in Jesus Christ. He is the only way. I'm telling you this morning, don't place your faith in anything less than Jesus. Anything other than Jesus will only lead to disappointment. Anything other than Jesus will now never allow you to see the Father in heaven. You may have loved ones who have already preceded you in death. And maybe you wait the day we can see each other again. The only way you will ever see your loved one is to believe this truth, that Jesus is absolutely, positively the only way. So don't place your faith in something shallow. Only place your faith in Jesus Christ, for he is the way. Father, Lord, we thank you for the truth we receive in this message today. Lord, and I even pray for all of us collected together, if we want here today, somehow, some way, have never received the truth of Jesus. 